This is The Guardian. Bereit für eine smartere Arbeitsweise? Mit Asana sorgen Sie in Teams jeder Größe für mehr Klarheit und Verantwortungsbewusstsein. Verknüpfen Sie Ihre Arbeit mit Unternehmenszielen, damit Sie immer wissen, was planmäßig verläuft und welche Arbeiten gefährdet sind. Erreichen Sie schneller bessere Ergebnisse und automatisieren Sie Workflows im Unternehmen. Asana – A Smarter Way to Work Kostenlos unter asana.com testen asana.com Labour is in turmoil this week. Once again, the party is battling anti-Semitism within its ranks. In the past three days, the party has suspended two prospective Labour candidates, Azar Ali running for Rochdale and Graham Jones running for Hindburn in Lancashire. Keir Starmer is trying to show his strong leadership. It's a tough decision, a necessary decision, but when I say the Labour Party has changed under my leadership, I mean it. It's been a tumultuous 48 hours for the Labour leader. Over the weekend, Starmer gave Ali his backing, only to sack him 36 hours later, before then having to suspend Jones less than 24 hours after that. But why the dither? And what does it tell us about Starmer as a leader? Unsurprisingly, the controversy has given Rishi Sunak extra wind in his sails after a tough couple of weeks for the Prime Minister. Keir Starmer has been running around for the last year trying to tell everybody, OK, the Labour Party's changed. Look what just happened in Rochdale. But it's not all roses for Rishi, as he could end the week with two fewer Tory MPs following by-elections in Kingswood and Wellingborough, and with the country in technical recession. I'm Kieran Stacey, standing in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today in Westminster is The Guardian's political correspondent, Eleni Correa. Hi, Eleni. Hey, good to be here. So we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and already it's been a week of by-election drama. By Friday, Rishi Sunak may have lost two by-elections in Wellingborough and Kingswood, ending a difficult few weeks for the Prime Minister. But Labour is also in a huge mess over their candidate in the subsequent by-election in Rochdale, who is Azar Ali. On Tuesday morning, Labour withdrew their support for Ali, a day and a half after audio first emerged of him espousing a conspiracy theory that Israel deliberately allowed Hamas's attacks on the 7th of October to obtain a green light to do what they want in Gaza. Starmer finally dropped Ali after more audio was revealed of him making more controversial comments about Israel. Here he is, blaming Jewish people for the suspension of Labour MP Andy MacDonald. He's a solid Palestinian, pro-Palestinian supporter. The media... Right, and some of the people in the media from certain Jewish uh, quarters were given about what he said. Eleni, we were trying to think of a precedent for a party withdrawing support for their candidates in the middle of a by-election campaign, and we can't really think of any. Uh, so what we've ended up with is Labour going into this by-election officially with a candidate, but they're not going to campaign for him. Is is that what we're seeing right now? Yeah, that is what we're seeing. It's such a strange situation. I really can't think of another time when this has happened. And it's actually quite complicated and knotty in the sense that Azar Ali will still appear on the ballot paper in Rochdale as the Labour candidate. So people going to vote on Thursday will get ballot papers that say he's a Labour candidate. But the party's not campaigning for him. It's not supporting for him. And if he does get elected, he will sit as an independent MP. So he will never have the Labour whip. 
And it's possible that he could still win because a lot of people who don't follow politics as closely as we do day to day will just go to vote on Thursday and they may well just vote for him as a Labour candidate. Right. And a lot of people will have voted for him already using postal votes. That's also so, true. Yeah. Labour initially supported Ali after he apologised for those initial comments. Pat McFadden, who is Labour's campaign coordinator, was around giving interviews on Sunday supporting Azhar Ali, saying his comments were wrong, but that Ali had apologised for them. But by Monday night, more audio of Ali's comments was released, and McFadden was once more on the airwaves, this time rolling all of that back. Information has come to light about comments he's made on not just one occasion, but uh, more than that, which has meant we've had to take the difficult decision to withdraw support from his candidacy. Eleni, this obviously has ramifications for Rochdale, but it also tells us something interesting about Starmer's leadership, especially the week after that agonised decision to drop the £28 billion green spending plan. What do you think we're learning about the Labour leader and the way he approaches leadership? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think the question that everybody has been asking themselves over the past 24 or 48 hours is, why did Keir Starmer stick by his candidate when he had made such egregious comments, such unacceptable comments, when he's been so quick to act in the past against MPs who have made um, comments that he deemed anti-Semitic? I've been speaking to people this morning uh, who were consulted by Starmer's team over the weekend when the story in the Mail on Sunday first broke about Ali's comments. So what the Labour leadership's team did is call around people they trusted, the Jewish Labour movement, Jewish MPs, uh, other advisors and activists to get their views. And people that they spoke to didn't immediately tell Starmer to withdraw his support for Ali. There was a kind of feeling amongst the people I spoke to, at least, that since Ali had been a kind of ally of Jewish Labour MPs and members in the past, since he didn't have any history of anti-Semitic comments, and since he had apologised for this, that the Labour leadership might um, be able to stick by him. So that was the advice that Starmer got. Um, So I think that was really critical in his decision to stick by him. What then changed is more comments surfaced. One thing that people have mentioned to me that Labour advisers have said to me in the last few weeks is that Stammer has this particular style of leadership where he likes to take advice from a lot of people mm. and then he goes quiet for mm. a while and he takes himself away and he thinks for a while and then he comes up with a decision and that decision is final. Mm. And, and that approach is presumably great if you're a judge, for example, which <laughs> is exactly what you're doing every day, but might actually be less good, especially in the heat of a, an election campaign. I know a lot of people are concerned that, that, you know, that he's not going to survive the election campaign because of that style of decision-making. Yeah. But, the, but there is, a, I guess, there is an alternative explanation here and one that some on the left are, are putting forward, that this is, his indecision was not because uh, he was making his mind up, but because of factionalism and that he's been more willing to support candidates from the centre or the right of the party than those from the left of the party. And, and let's just talk about a couple of those. Andy MacDonald, whom we referenced earlier, He was suspended after he spoke at a rally urging for peace and used the phrase from the river to the sea, Um, while Kate Ossimore on Holocaust Memorial Day sent an email that urged people to observe other genocides and included Gaza in a list of them. So the left of the party says, look, the reason those guys face suspension almost immediately is because they're from the opposite wing Mm. of the party, from Starmer. Do you think that's fair? Well, I mean, I think it's a really good point in that 
the Labour leadership should have seen this coming. I mean, looking at what Ali said and looking at the leaked comments that were reported in the Mail on Sunday, you know, they were really, really unacceptable and much worse than things that MPs on the left have said and got been suspended for. But it was pretty clear that there would be huge backlash to Labour sticking by its candidate in this case. And it was very clear that they would face accusations of factionalism because, as you say, MPs on the left of the party have been treated much more harshly. So it would have been the politically smart thing to do, and I realise it's easy to say this now in hindsight, but it would definitely have been the politically smart thing to do to immediately withdraw support for the candidate and just avoid this whole complicated uh, situation and all the Tory attacks that have ensued. Yeah, one Labour senior advisor said to me today, we should have realised from the beginning that the idea or the line that they tried over the weekend, which was that Ali had, quotes, fallen for a conspiracy theory, was never really going to work. I mean, you, you're either badging your candidate as stupid or anti-Semitic. So no, <laughs> please, either please way, vote for a candidate who just fell for it online for conspiracy theory. theory. <laughs> uh, yeah. Obviously, one of the things this has served to do is bring up all of those divisions that Starmer thought maybe he'd put to bed between the Corbynites on one hand and the the centrists on the other. You've been talking to Labour people all day. How are they feeling? Is is the party as divided as it was, say, a couple of years ago? Has Starmer got a handle on all of this? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think the left of the Labour Party has been very frustrated and very unhappy with Starmer for a while. Uh, this is the first time we've seen their attacks and their criticisms actually have a little bit of cut through more because of the situation, because of the kind of obvious difference in which this case was handled and um, MPs on the left were handled. I, I think the thing is, most Labour MPs are not from the left of the party. So, you know, by and large, they're still behind the leadership. I mean, you know, a lot of them are privately very unhappy with the way that this was handled um, and the way that this is all developed. The Labour membership has also changed. So a lot of Corbyn supporters have left the membership. Starmer supporters have joined. So the makeup of the kind of grassroots has also changed. So overall, I think, you know, Starmer has still a really good hold on the party. And because the party's on its way to winning, if we believe the polls in the kind of next year, very few people want to jeopardise that. Yeah, a 20-point lead in the polls, as you say, can can mask a lot of divisions below the surface. I guess the problem is if that becomes 10 points or 5 points, mm. then then this all comes up again. But let's just talk again about Rochdale for a second. We've got this completely bizarre situation where there are three people on the ballot who have been, at one point or another, elected Labour Party officials, but none of them are actually running with the support of the party. So aside from Ali himself, there's George Galloway, the controversial former Labour MP who's standing for the Workers' Party, and another former Labour MP, Simon Dunchuk, who's standing for Reform UK. Who's the real threat here, do you think, as far as the Labour Party is concerned? So over the weekend and today, what activists, Labour activists and Labour MPs were talking about is the threat of Galloway and their concerns that all of this means we might see George Galloway elected and George Galloway returned to the Commons. And they worry that that will mean just a more divisive atmosphere. You know, he's quite, he's a real kind of firebrand. He's says controversial things. I think as far as most people are concerned, Galloway is the biggest threat here. And that is one of the reasons why originally some people were calling for Starmer to stick by Ali because they thought that he would be able to then stop Galloway from being elected. And they saw Galloway as the, the greater evil. Uh, and of course, the Conservatives have seized on this. 
Here is Rishi Sunak speaking at a People's Forum hosted by GB News on Monday night. A candidate saying the most vile, awful conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic. And what happened? He stood by him, sent cabinet ministers to support him until, under enormous media pressure, has decided to change his mind. That's not principled. Not principled at all. But the reality is, for the Conservatives, things aren't looking that much brighter. Sunak could end this week losing two by-elections, and that would set a post-war record for the biggest number of Conservative by-election defeats in a single parliament. If he does lose, it seems likely we'll see another round of noises off from those in the party who want to oust Sunak as Prime Minister altogether. Eleni, do you have a sense of what we might see from the plotters? Well, they've been a little bit quiet for the past couple of weeks, maybe. Um, But we do know there is this group of former advisors, MPs um, that are out to get Sunak. And this moment is one of the moments that they've been waiting for. So if the Tories do lose these two by-elections this week, um, they've made it clear that for them, that's a kind of crunch point at which we may well see another wave of criticism and attacks undermining Sunak. I mean, what form will that take? It's possible that we might see, say, other MPs joining, at least one other MP perhaps, joining in calling for Rishi Sunak to resign as Tory leader before the next election. These people are people who have been in government, you know, fairly recently. So we, so they have information that could be damaging to Rishi Sunak. So we might see more leaks to the media, you know, with damaging information is another kind of possible behind the scenes thing that the rebels have been working with. So, I mean, this is a real kind of crunch point. And the next one is probably the local elections. Mm. Um, so if the Tories do lose those two seats, uh, then it's a kind of real danger point. Well, Eleni, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks very much for having me on. Just after I spoke to Eleni, the two of us had to jump on another breaking news story as fresh audio emerged from that meeting, this time from Graham Jones, Labour's candidate in Hindburn. Jones was recorded using the term effing Israel and said that Britons who volunteered to fight with the IDF should be locked up, which is, as a matter of law, incorrect. Unsurprisingly, he was suspended from the party almost immediately and is expected to be removed as a candidate soon. Over the next few days, reporters are going to be trawling through both what happened at that Heinburn meeting and what any other Labour candidate has said about Israel or Gaza. If Labour's vetting procedures are anything other than watertight, I would expect more revelations to come and more pressure on the Labour leader. OK, let's pause here for a minute. Up next, we'll go through some of the economic news from this week and what it means for our bank balances and the election to come. I'm Grace Den, and friends, I am back with some more helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. I'm welcoming a host of fabulous guests, from David Bedil to Katie Price, and from Amol Rajan to Kathy Burke, and they'll be revealing the tastes they turn to when in need of solace and cheer. Comfort Eating returns on the 13th of February, with new episodes released every Tuesday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's a big week for economy nerds and for Rishi Sunak, who not only set out three economic pledges last year for us to hold him accountable to, but has also implied that he will fight this general election on his economic record. 
On Wednesday, the latest inflation figures were released, and inflation was shown to have remained at 4%, despite some analysts' concern that it would rise to 4.5%. But what does all this mean for us, and for the government? I'm joined by Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economic editor, who can guide us through these numbers. Larry, the headlines on Wednesday morning are all about food prices falling, which will be welcome to us all, if it's true. Is it true, and is it what we were expecting? Food prices fell in January alone, but they're still rising year on year. So the annual inflation rate for food is still 7%. So that means over the last 12 months, food prices have gone up by 7%. That's a reduction from what it was a month earlier when it was 8%. But they are actually starting to fall for the first time in three years, which is good news for people's budgets. Because particularly poor people who spend a lot more of their family income on food than rich people. So it's good news for poor people. Yeah. And one of Rishi Sunak's five pledges that he made last year was to reduce inflation, in fact, to bring it down by half. He has met that target. Is that something he can take credit for, do you think? It's not really much to do with the government. I mean, it's much more to do with two external factors. One is what's happening in the global economy. Energy prices generally have come down, and that's helped. And also the Bank of England has whopped interest rates up 14 times between December 2021 and August 2023. And that's actually slowed the economy and squeezed inflationary pressure out of the economy. And so those two factors are much more important than anything Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt has done, although they'll clearly claim credit for it. And obviously, the Bank of England has this inflation target of 2%. Do we have any sense of when that might be hit, if ever? And do you think that that will again be something the government tries to take credit for? It's going to be hit fairly soon, actually. It will be hit probably in April or May for two reasons. One, the annual inflation rate is the price increases that you've seen in each of the last 12 months. So there's some big increases from this time last year, which will fall out of the 12-month and 12-month comparison. And also energy prices are coming down. So the, the April energy price cap, which is the limit that people have to pay for their energy, is going to be much lower, and that will cut the inflation rate. So we are going to see it come down fairly quickly from 4%, could be 2% by April or May. Right. But of course, we have seen this huge rise in inflation over the last couple of years. Prices are much higher than they were before uh, you know, the, the conflict in Ukraine, for example. Is it fair to say that most people probably don't feel better off at this point than they did maybe a couple of years ago? Yeah, because you're right. Inflation is coming down, but that doesn't mean to say that prices are coming down. It just means that prices are going up less quickly than they were a year ago. And that's substantially the case. Uh, And people should start to feel a little bit better off now because wages are rising more quickly than prices. In the last two years, what's been happening is that prices have been rising much more quickly than people's pay has been rising, which has made them worse off. That's flipped around in recent months. Wages are starting to rise more quickly than prices are rising. And therefore, people's living standards are starting to improve a little bit and gradually. I mean, it's not spectacular. And it's probably a bit late in the day for the government if it's fighting an election this year, if, if, if you're honest. I mean, what governments like to do is to have two or three years of rising real incomes towards the end of a parliament and get a good feel-good factor going. It's hard to see where that's coming from, really, this time. It's, it's very late in the day. Yeah. And then, of course, on Thursday morning, we're going to see GDP figures published uh, that will tell us whether, in fact, the UK entered a recession, a technical recession, towards the end of 2023. Now, we're speaking 24 hours before those numbers come out, so we can only speculate on what they might say. But can you just tell us exactly what we mean when we say the economy's in recession? 
A recession is where the economy falls for two consecutive quarters. So if you think about national output, which is what GDP measures, you know, the money value of what's produced in the economy, if that falls for two consecutive quarters, that's technically a recession. It's a bit of a spurious definition, if I'm honest, because you could have a period where you have one quarter where the economy falls dramatically and then another quarter where it just rises marginally and that wouldn't be considered a recession or you can have two quarters where it falls very very slightly which is what happened in the final six months of 2023 perhaps and that does technically qualify as a recession so but essentially the story of the economy in the last two years as it's been going sideways i mean there hasn't really been any growth in the economy since the first few months of 2022 since then it's pretty much flatlined and in in terms of people's real incomes per head because the population has been rising people's income per head over that time has been falling and which is why people's living standards have been eroded right because when people hear the word recession they kind of think back to big crashes don't they you know like 2008 for example we're not in that situation are we or, or could we be soon 2008 was a proper recession the economy contracted for five or six quarters in a row. And if you take the peak to the trough, it was about a 6% fall in GDP. Um, so that's a that, that's a, stomp- that's a recession. That's a, that, I mean, that's a proper recession. Yeah. And, and also what people often think about is when they're losing their job or when they know someone who is losing their jobs. And people really haven't been losing their jobs in any real fashion in this period of stagnation. The labour market has remained pretty strong. Well, and it won't surprise you that Tory advisors that I've been speaking to in the last few days are very keen to stress this difference between a, a, a big recession, a proper recession, as you call it, and a technical recession. Um, they insist that if the numbers show that there's negative 0.1% or there was negative 0.1% growth at the end of last year, that isn't politically damaging. But I wonder if just the word recession being bandied about is going to damage him, even if we don't think it is a proper recession. I think in economic terms, it means diddly squat, really. Right. I mean, but in political terms, I, I think they're, they're they're obviously trying to gild the lily there, the, your 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 political mates down at Westminster, because clearly politically it is damaging for the government just to have the word recession used. I mean, if 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 the economy contracts by even 0.1 percent in the final three months of 2023, it will be all over the news, and it will pe- people will get the impression that the economy is not actually doing that well. I mean, I th- it, you know, and that is what matters politically. The government it desperately needs people to think we've come through the really bad periods. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Things are going to get better. Don't let the other lot ruin our lovely recovering economy. And the idea that the economy is still in recession is a setback to that, clearly. Right, exactly. Don't go back to square one doesn't work so well if, if square one was growth and where you are is not. Exactly. So if, if even if the economy is only technically in recession, it's not a good look for the government. Okay, so we're now less than a month away from the spring budget. Could be Jeremy Hunt's last big fiscal event before an election. We're not sure. What are you expecting we might see from the Chancellor? Oh, there's bound to be... There's bound to be tax cuts. He's not been subtle about signalling them. Has I mean, he? The, the, the Treasury people are trying to say that you know that there's not much money to spare, and you know that public finances are so weak, you know, and, and, and he's in a worse position than he was at the time of the autumn statement three months ago. I mean, I just don't buy that. He will find some money down the back of the sofa somewhere or along the line. They, they will squeeze some tax cuts out of this uh, out of the next month or so definitely i mean you know it's inconceivable that the government who is 20 points old behind the polls is not going to 
have tax cuts in the last budget before election. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the last word on tax cuts before the election, assuming the election's going to be late October, November next year. They might squeeze in another fiscal event, as they call it, you know, another tax cutting episode before that. But th- this is this is the last time he's going to stand outside number 11 holding up his red box. That red box is going to contain a speech which has some personal tax cuts in it. And I'd have thought, I'd have thought you know, that is nailed on. Yeah. One other piece of news we got earlier this week was the labour market data, which basically tells us how the UK's workforce is doing. What did that tell us? I thought the big news out of the labour market data was that this a very, very big increase in the number of people who are not working due to ill health. I mean, I think that's the big story. The number of people before the pandemic who were not working because they were long-term sick was 2.1 million. And that's risen now to 2.8 million. I mean, that's a stonking increase, a third up in four years. And it's clearly a real worry to the government because if you've got a lot of job vacancies, which we have, and you're, you're actually depriving yourself of people who want to work but can't because they're not very well, then that actually puts pressure, upward pressure on wages and actually prevents inflation from coming down as fast as it would. Now, headline inflation is coming down, but you know, so-called core inflation is not coming down so fast, hard you know, underlying inflation. And one of the reasons for that is that wage pressure remains strong. And one of the reasons for that is that there are fewer workers around. So we've got this kind of interesting and slightly mixed picture, don't we? We've got this rise in long-term sick. We've got the potential of a technical recession, but we've also got inflation falling and wages now starting to grow faster than inflation, which is which is good news. On Monday, Rishi Sunak was saying that the economy has turned a corner. Is there any reason we should be more optimistic about the year to come? I think things will gradually improve as the year goes on because in, you know the Bank of England, having raised interest rates 14 times from 0.1%, to 5.25% in, at every meeting it held um, is going to be cutting interest rates at some point during the course of this year. I mean, the financial markets think there'll be at least three or four cuts in interest rates. The housing market seems to have turned a corner on the back of that. People are a bit more confident about taking out a mortgage because they think interest rates are going to come down. So I think you know th- there is going to be a modest pickup in the economy this year, but I stress the word modest it's not off to the races it's not boom boom britain it's not you know the sort of you know feel good economy that a government would like to be seeing in the run up to election particularly this government with its you know massive poll deficit but yes you know th- th- things are going to get marginally better this year we're not boom boom britain things can only get marginally better uh, <laughs> these are great political slogans for <laughs> sunak to take into an election <laughs> larry elliott thanks very much for joining okay, us okay thanks Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. If you want an in-depth look at what is going on in Rochdale, then you can listen to our sister podcast, Today in Focus, where Noshin Iqbal is speaking to The Guardian's North of England editor, Helen Pidd. This episode was produced by Eli Block, music by Axel Kukutier, the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.